Welcome to Zero to CEO, where seasoned entrepreneurs will teach you how to succeed. I'm your host, Jason Sherman. In today's episode of Zero to CEO, I'm going to talk to Alex Fink. Alex is an AI pioneer, and he's the CEO and founder of OtherWeb, very cool uh, website. We're going to talk about it in a second. And um, first thing I'm gonna, I want to talk about, because this is going to be a, a lot to do with AI, right? AI is like super hot right now. ChatGPT is taking over the world. Midjourney, Dolly, you know, Bard, all of them, right? Tell me your take on... Uh, you know, how AI is kind of transforming, in your case, the media landscape um, in terms of like how people are utilizing it to help them navigate the media landscape a little bit besides what you do. Right. So the biggest transformation we see going on is that generative AI is making it cheaper to create content. And it's specifically useful for creating bad content because good content is still complicated to create. So what we're seeing, and I think we're going to see it more and more going forward, is that the quantity of bad content is going to grow faster than everything else. And the signal-to-noise ratio is going to go down, right? And you're seeing this already with the clickbait outlets out there, where before that, one single writer could produce 10, maybe 15 articles per day, and now they can easily produce 500. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's going to get only worse. Right. But you're not seeing investigative journals suddenly publishing things more than after right. three months of investigation. Right. So it's essentially like the development of spam in the mid 90s, where we need to create spam filters. Otherwise, we're going to drown. And that's the second side of this coin where we come in and where I think a lot of other companies need to pick up the mantle. If somebody's creating all this junk, then we need AI-based tools to filter out all this junk as well. Absolutely. And in this episode, we're covering the insights of AI and the media landscape, of course. And and before we started this um, episode, I was telling you back back when um, Trump got elected as president, my friend and I were like, wow, the, the misinformation of news was just rampant. And it wasn't really AI back then. It was just people creating bad content to mislead people and, and force people to kind of brainwash them into certain, um, you know, end results, right? And so we were going to build this news site that uh, journalists could be uh, part of, and then they could fact-based check the articles, and then the articles would have point bases on them. And then you would know what's real and what's fake based on like real journalists from like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We never built it, but um, the idea behind it was to filter out all of the bad stuff. So um, you mentioned to me that people did build stuff like that. Can we touch a little bit about what happened after the last election and what caused, and, and I mean two two elections ago, and what happened to the news outlets and and how it kind of changed after that? So there's multiple different directions I could go with this. I want to actually try to point out maybe kind of a heterodox belief that I have. That is, what we're observing right now is not the result of malice by some group of people that is trying to brainwash others. It's the result of a process we've been seeing for more than 20 years, where if most content is monetized through ads and most ads pay per click or per view, it just pays to create content mm-hmm. that generates clicks. And it just so happened around 2016 uh. that the content that generated the most clicks is the Pope endorses Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton has been indicted for something, something, right? That is just the thing that worked as clickbait. I don't even think the people that were creating it were necessarily 
on the right wing of our wow. political spectrum or working for Russia. Obviously, those existed as well. Right. But I think the guys who were just chasing clicks were the majority of it. Wow. So they just wanted to make money off of this stuff. It was less about um, misinformation and more about making money. Um, so then right. t- tell me, in your view, what the most significant challenges facing journalists now, uh, especially using AI, um, and what they can do to address these challenges. Well, what I just described is also a big challenge for journalists because their margins are getting squeezed consistently, right? Content is cheaper to create. Content is chasing clicks to monetize itself. The content that gets the most clicks is the type that has been engineered to get clicks and not the type that has been engineered to deliver value to the reader, right? And so if you are a journalist out there and you're trying to write high quality content, you probably can't monetize it very well. Mm-hmm. And we actually have an advisor in our company that is one of these really in-depth investigative journalists that would fly to the Amazonas and spend two years there investigating <laughs> something about some water sources drying up, right? And he's essentially relying on consulting on the site to be able to pay for his journalistic work wow. because there is no way to monetize it using the media as the monetization tool. That's crazy I, to me because, I yeah. mean, when you th- when you really think about it, uh, you know, you said it in the beginning of the episode, you can't really write high quality stuff using AI. Like you can write informational stuff that makes sense to a reader that says, oh, I learned something from that article, but it's not going to have anything of substance and like a personal touch on it right. based on what the journalist sees in the field. So do you think that, AI is ever going to get to that point where you really don't know. I mean, people are fooled nowadays by AI content, but do you think it's going to get to a point where it gets so personal in the psyche of the journalist that people really won't know if it was written by the journalist or not? I think it's possible. In general, if you look at how AI works right now, under the hood, the models are just given a set of words, predict what the next word is most likely to be. That's the basic of chat GPT or of GPT-4 as a model, right? So at this point, it's just predicting things based on text that has seen in the past. And therefore, if you don't know anything about the subject in particular, chances are you will be fooled into thinking that the human wrote this because it's emulating human written text from the past. Now, if you know the subject and you know all the different things that have been published on this, you will recognize that this new piece of writing you're looking at is not original in any way. It's repeating passages from previous parts sometimes verbatim, like CNET found out about a year ago, right? Um, and so it, sounds, I, it, it sounds like we can't really trust it. I mean, everyone's using ChatGPT. I mean, I'm yeah. guilty of using it on a daily basis. I can't live without it. If it ever gets taken away from me, what am I going to do now? Like, it's my, right. assi- it's my assistant. So I'm trusting it. Should we trust it? Is it risky? What's your take on it? Well, it depends what you do with it. Um, if you're using it as a shortcut to note, go browsing Wikipedia or Google yourself and just asking it to give you pointers into what to look at next, it's a great tool, but then you don't need it to be reliable. You just need it to give you good ideas, right? But if you're trusting it to generate your legal briefs, then please stop. <laughs> <laughs> Call a lawyer. I mean, you know, I think it's, I mean, is it okay to like, you know, ask for some advice, maybe get a document template and then kind of fine tune it and then send it to your lawyer. So you save maybe hundreds of dollars of hours of that time, maybe? It, it, it could be, but I can tell you one odd experiment <laughs> that I've done before. This was not really related to the other web. It's kind of related to let's say, a company that I was giving free advice to. Um, But I asked ChatGPT at some point, 
how are foreign entities uh, defined? Or well, let me remember what that was exactly. I think how are foreign source material defined under ITAR, which is the export control of military production in the U.S. And it gave me a really detailed, really nice looking definition wow. saying which sections it pulled each part from. And then I asked my lawyer exactly what you just suggested. Like, do you see anything wrong with this? Can I follow this advice? And he says, ITAR doesn't have this text. <laughs> oh, wow. So it just made it all up, basically. <laughs> yep. So we can't uh, really trust it too much. But at the end yet. of the but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, there is a like you mentioned something really interesting to me. You said um, instead of navigating Google and Wikipedia, which I've pretty much stopped doing since using ChatGPT, um, what's the next evolution that you think people are going to be using it for besides that time saving of the search engines? Well, I think, and I actually had a few podcast episodes on my own podcast where I was asking people this question. Oh, okay. And probably the be- the best idea that I heard so far is that the immediate next step is integrating new sources of private data with this. You already see this being done a little bit, but not entirely. But the next thing would be to use ChatGPT to search your own archives, your own browsing history, your own spreadsheets. You will ask it to calculate things out of information you already have. And there's a chance it will do it better than you can, right? Yeah, because yeah, I use, um, like I'll upload a PDF or a Google Sheet or something like that. And I'll ask it to say, hey, take this PDF and then make an FAQ for me. And it'll do that, right? Which is mind blowing. Or I'll say, here's a PDF. Um, give me 10 questions I can ask based on the information in this, things like that. And it does all of it for me. Right. And it's accurate, right? So, yep. so that's, it seems like it's almost already there. But yep. what, what are your thoughts in like how that's going to evolve? Because that's to me, it's like, okay, I can do that, but it still can't do this, 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 and this. Right. But let, let's talk about why there are certain things that it cannot do yet. Well, one basic answer is just the amount of compute. Maybe they need a lot more data and a lot more compute to be able to become more reliable. That is actually the answer you hear most often from OpenAI itself, right? But I think the bigger problem with these large language models as they stand right now is that they are trained on data that isn't really curated in any way. Mm -hmm. So we are solving the problem of junk on the internet and we are trying to help people consume less junk and more real information. Well, the people who are training the models are feeding it the entire internet. And so if most of the internet is junk, right. then most of what the model learns is completely nonsensical. I actually saw sure. a really fun example at some point where somebody asked ChatGPT, when did France gift the Vilnius uh, TV tower to Lithuania? And ChatGPT answered, it gave it in 1980 as present for Lithuania's independence. Well, here's the problem. Lithuania started building that tower in 1972. You can't really gift a tower because it's a tower. How do you transport it, right? <laughs> and it didn't become independent until 1988. The source of the information ChatGPT had was a single tweet from the Lithuanian embassy for oh. April 1st. It was an April, April Fool's, Fool's joke. joke. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't know. But see, now, can, can it learn that April 1st, that's always an April Fool's joke t- typically? I mean, it should be able to learn that at some point, right? I, that's, I th- that's a great example, by the yeah. way. Yeah, kind of. Maybe I suspect it's the person curating the data set before feeding it to the model that needs to learn that. And I don't think there is another way right now. That's a, Yes, that's a it's good at example. finding its own patterns, but you really can't tell it that this April information yeah. needs to be ignored just because you decided to. 
you need to put that information in the ignore pile to begin with somehow. Right. Or at least say that's less credible. Like right. if you're reading April Wikipedia, 1st. just assume that as 80% credibility. And if you're reading a fanfic forum, then assume this is 5% credibility. Or, right? or, Give tweet, it some or, tweet, or tweets are just opinionated. So you, you right. mentioned junk content and like a lot of junk on the internet. Most of the internet has junk. So tell me a little bit about your journey, about how you decided one day, I want to clean up the junk and I want to display real information and I want it to be in a way that's easy to understand and beautiful. Explain that to me. Right. So for the 15 years prior to that, I was working mostly on perception systems, cameras, computer vision, that sort of thing, which means I was generating information for the, for the most part. And then at some point I had this crisis of conscience where I realized the world doesn't need more cameras, but I keep creating more and more of them. And so I tried to think, well, what is the biggest problem I could solve with the things that I know how to do and all the connections that I have with smart people around the world? And it seemed like curating information is the most important thing that I could devote myself to. So I had that transition about two and a half years ago. And a friend uh, of mine in Austin here helped me out initially. He eventually became an advisor to the company. We made the first set of models that just tries to evaluate content quality. Just read text and don't try to generate anything. Just measure things about that text. Like, is the headline likely to be clickbait or not? Is it mostly subjective, mostly objective? Is the tone formal, informal? Is it hateful or is it offensive or not? Right? Things that there is some agreement among academics about, at right. least. Right. There's right? some basis. And, there's some basis to right. it. Yeah. Or at least you ask ten people on the street, they're likely to agree. Like if there is something that we could ask ten people on the street and they were likely to disagree, like let's say, was this written by a person who is biased to the left or biased to the right? We created these models. We saw that people don't quite agree universally with the results, so we never rolled them out. Like we left them as open source; people can use them. But to me, that's just imprecise enough. It's not that we're chasing objectivity, but we're chasing at least broad agreement with the way that we rank stuff. So that was step one. And after that, we asked our users, "Do you like it? Do you use it?" They said, "We like it. We've only used it a few times, but it's an extra click. Can you embed it with the article somehow?" And that's why we created a platform that actually aggregates all the news on the platform itself. And it's not just news, it's news, commentary, podcasts, research studies, everything we can get our crawlers on, right? And then we run the models on it. If we catch some real red flags with the model, we just eliminate it out of the data set. And if not, then we just try to give all the information to users in a way that helps them kind of adjust their feed. So the idea is we are not necessarily your curator. You are the curator. We just give you more tools. Very interesting. And this is, uh, I mean, this is the future, right? This is, um, you definitely brought the future to the present day. Where can people find out um, how to use it or what it is, or maybe is it free or? Yeah. So you mentioned otherweb.com. That's the website. And if you go on that website, it will ask you whether you want to continue to the website or download the Android or iOS apps, right? Because we created those as well. And there's even a newsletter that you can sign up for if you just want to spend five minutes per day reading the news and nothing more. Um, It's free. It's ad-free. For now, it doesn't try to offer you anything. Obviously, at some point, we'll need to add monetization. But right now, the investors are making sure that you have to pay nothing, including with your own time. Love it. Awesome, man. Alex, this was awesome. Everyone, check out otherweb.com if you want a filtered, curated, non 
not nonsensical, right? A view on the news and the media, and it's all using AI. Thanks again, and hope you guys learned something. See you in the next episode. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you learned something today, please support this podcast by subscribing to it, sharing it with your friends, and leaving a five star review. You can learn more about me at jasonsherman.org, where you'll find information about my book, also called Strap on Your Boots, available on Amazon as well as my course called Startup Essentials on Udemy or Skillshare. I'll see you in next week's episode.